Please be seated. Indeed, uh, what a great uh, song just to conclude on, uh, that aspect of, of communion here and to worship, and surely uh, that is what it brings us to, isn't it, is to a point of worship to God for what he has done. Uh, just a couple of notices before we uh, move, move along. Uh, this week, uh, of course, prayer meeting tomorrow night back at, at Varden School in the, in the library. Uh, Wednesday night Bible study. Is it this week? That's a good point. Are we the first or third Wednesday? I always get this confused. It is, is it? It is, right out. Uh, <coughs> time just sort of uh, carries on. But anyway, okay, so uh, Wednesday night, it, was, it is the uh, third. So we will get on to um, Wednesday night study, continuing in through the book of uh, Timothy. Come along at 6 o'clock if you want to eat. Come along at 7 if you don't. So there we go. The study starts at 7 o'clock at the OAC uh, headquarters, Aberdeen Drive. Now coming up, 1st of October, which is a Saturday, we are planning another church uh, dinner at the Ark, kicking off about 4 o'clock. So come and uh, if you're not hungry, come along at 4 o'clock and do a few laps around the field to build up some hunger, <laughs> uh, perhaps uh, bring a ball and uh, play some soccer or something, but anyway, four o'clock onwards, come and uh, join together. Great opportunities outside of Sunday. Sunday is great to fellowship in a certain way, uh, but we look to try and create other opportunities to connect uh, just as people kind of journeying in life together, and so this is one way. Uh, we'll be looking forward to doing other things as the summer approaches, uh, perhaps involving uh, water or swimming or boating or something. But uh, anyway, for this one, 1st of October, Saturday evening, come and just enjoy fellowship uh, and food together at the Ark. So uh, keep that on your radar and in your calendar. Other than that, let's continue on, shall we? Children, you have an opportunity to head to your class through the doors, eh? Through the, the glass doors. So that sounds quite, quite significant. Uh, and the rest of us will remain here and look forward to joining up with you shortly. So we are, of course, in the book of uh, <coughs> Nehemiah. Let's turn there, shall we? Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3, of course, um, <clears throat> chapter 3 and chapter 4 kind of fit together uh, in an interesting way. You see, in chapter 3 of Nehemiah, we get the, the, the action, we, we get the building work going on. Uh, chapter 4, we get the result of that. And of course, the result of, of the building work may not be exactly uh, as you think, you know, the, the idea is, well, you've built something, uh, then you look back and admire your work. Uh, but there's a few other things that happen as a result of the building uh, that we will get to. But Nehemiah, of course, so far, he's someone who we learn a lot from, the way he handled things. Uh, there's many lessons that we can uh, find in the person of Nehemiah, an example to us uh, in many areas. Uh, he, we know that he was moved in his heart when he 
uh, heard the state of Jerusalem. He, he inquired and, and, he, and he heard what was going on. The place was still a wreck. Uh, he prayed about that. First thing he did, he prayed. And he, it was about four months later, he got an opportunity to do something. And that was sort of dropped into his lap when the king asked him. He said, hey, you're not looking too, too chipper? What's up? And, and that was sort of the, the uh, opportunity then to speak about what was going on in Jerusalem. He sought letters enabling him to embark on a project of rebuilding uh, the walls. And he arrived in Jerusalem. We saw that last week. He, the first thing he did, he took stock of the situation before he did anything. He just sort of cruised around at night, scoping it out, uh, looking and gaining information before he did anything else. He then spoke to the, the people and, and invited them to join him in the rebuilding of the walls and if you look back at uh, verse 17 of chapter 2 we read I said to them you see the distress that we're in so he at this point he had spent time three days just looking around the walls he wanted to get the facts of the situation and of course this is the always the first thing to do is what are the facts uh, so often um, we can get off track with this and, and sort of go off on our own idea. But I want to get the facts of the situation. What does it look like? And so he, 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 he cruised around, he looked, he observed, he got the facts, and then he said to the people, you see the distress that we are in. Our Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. So he, he's inviting them. He's, Come on, let's do this that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's word that he had spoken to me. And here is uh, the high point here in verse 18. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to do this good work. So it became theirs. So Nehemiah said, hey, let's get on with this. Come on, uh, let us build. And the people had a heart to work. They set their heart to it, and they set their hands to it. And so as we get into chapter 3, and we, we're sort of going to, to skip through quite a bit of chapter 3. We'll sort of touch on chapter 3 and, and chapter 4. Chapter 3 records the building, the beginning of the building work. And we see here uh, at least 38 different crew. 38 different teams of guys are out here doing some work. Uh, <clears throat> you know, you've got these, these guys going and doing their job. And do we have that um, slide up of the wall? Um, <clears throat> so 38 teams went out around the walls of Jerusalem to start rebuilding certain pieces, certain sections. Uh, <clears throat> there's builders uh, and there's others. So the first couple of verses, let's look at this. Elisha, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they built the sheep gate, they consecrated it, hung its doors, they built as far as the Tower of the Hundred, and consecrated it then as far as the Tower of Hananel. Next to Elisha, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zacher, the son of Imri, built. And so you see that, that pattern continues on through this chapter, talking about a different people building different uh, parts of the wall. So there's all sorts of names up here, East Gate, Horse Gate, uh, Sheep Gate, Tower of the Hundred, Tower of Hananel, just mention that, Fish Gate, Old Gate, uh, Valley Gate, <coughs> uh, the Water Gate, <laughs> we know all about Water Gate, don't we? Uh, <laughs> Fountain Gate, uh, and of course, um, 
can't miss out the dung gate, right? The refuse gate, often called the dung gate, for obvious reasons. And so the 38 teams of guys are going around here, starting to build. And so this chapter is all about work and how various individuals pitched in and did the work together as it was sort of coordinated and led by Nehemiah. The gates were the critical entry points and exit points of the city and the places most likely to see an enemy attack, obviously. Uh, some of these gates were obvious. The sheep gate uh, was where um, shepherds primarily brought their flocks in through there. Um, <clears throat> we see here the high priest. He's the first guy mentioned here uh, as the one who um, took his crew and started working uh, on the areas that were assigned to him. Rebuilding a broken down wall that has lain that way for more than a hundred years would be in itself not a particularly exciting project, would it? It'd be hard, it'd be dirty work. But if that work is done as unto the Lord, then it's a whole new way of looking at it. Paul said in, in, uh, in Colossians, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know, we often get dirty jobs to do. And that can be defined in all sorts of ways, but things that we don't really want to do. We, we sort of, can someone else do that? <laughs> I don't want to do that, you know, whatever it might be. There are times when we can't just give excuses. We've got to get on and do it. Those are the times when that really test us. Those are the times when we need to be reminded of, of Paul's words, whatever we do, in word or deed. So there you are, working on the dung gate. Maybe you wanted to do you know, something that sounded better, Watergate. <laughs> but you're doing dung gate. Well, hey, do it as unto the Lord. Whatever your job's going to be tomorrow, maybe you'd, you'd rather do something else. Firstly, be thankful you got a job and then get on and do it as unto the Lord. And it does change our focus, doesn't it? And so as you go through this uh, rest of the chapter, we see all sorts of things going on. We see the fish gate uh, <clears throat> and its um, name given for that reason. Uh, the, the repairs were being made. Uh, 38 times the word for repairs, uh, Hebrew word chazak, is used. And it's the idea of strengthening, encouraging, and making something strong. 35 times that, that word is used throughout this, uh, this passage. Things were built up, things were strengthened. Well, the Bible uh, scripture tells us that we must also be built up and, and repaired. Ephesians 4, uh, God says the purpose of the church is for the equipping of the saints. The idea being behind that is to prepare, to strengthen, to make something strong and able to be used. And so as we come together as, as, as Christians, one of the purposes is, is to strengthen one another, to make us strong and able uh, to live for Christ, to serve him outside of the gathering of the church. We, there's others mentioned here, the, the Tekoites, they did their work. Uh, the people of the city of Tekoa were more than willing to work 
But it's interesting, as you that, that, that passage identifies that the nobles did not put their shoulders to the work. So those, you know, the nobles, those in the high-ranking positions of the Tekoites, what was up with them? They think, well, hey, you know, this works a bit beneath me. Uh, interesting that it was noted here that they didn't join in the work, uh, the hard work that was going on. And I guess there's always those who will feel that, well, that's sort of not my job. But if everyone had that approach, nothing would get done. Jehoiada, the son of Phasia and Mesulam, all sorts of interesting names here. Uh, they repaired the old gate. And so different names are mentioned, uh, different gates are mentioned, different professions are mentioned. Um, <clears throat> there were many who weren't builders. There is a, a, mess, a, a, a little snippet of information I ran across here. A fellow by the name uh, Mr. Olson, he helped rebuild thousands of houses back in 1972 in war-ravaged Bangladesh. And he derived unexpected inspiration from this passage. He says that he was struck that no expert builders were listed in this, what he called, Holy Land Brigade. There were priests, priest helpers, goldsmiths, perfume makers, and women, but no expert builders or carpenters are named. Kind of interesting, isn't it? As you go through all of this. The name of the men <coughs> who were said to have made repairs in front of their houses is interesting too because as we go through those, th this chapter, you'll find that um, <coughs> there in verse 10 or verse 23, there's the names of different people, 29 and verse 30, um, different names of people that mean some interesting things. One of them means he calls unto God. And the idea is that you know th these are some of the guys who rebuilt the walls right in front of their homes. Benjamin means son of my right hand. Zadok means uh, justice. Meshulam means devoted. Interesting that uh, these guys uh, are working uh, right in front of their homes first. And, and the, the case has been given. That it's interesting that the names of some of these guys, what it means, is certainly things that we need to also have active in our homes. Shalem, the son of Heloshesh, he and his daughters made repairs and so interesting that we have people uh, families involved all working for the same thing many different people working on the walls it was imperative they all worked with the same mind <coughs> builders of the fountain gate the refuse gate the valley gate The horse gate. The assembly gate. This chapter shows the need, I, do, I believe, for those of us believers, followers of Christ, to work together to accomplish something. God worked through his people, working together in one accord, with one heart, with one mind. God will also put us into situations perhaps a little bit similar. Maybe there's jobs that we don't want to do or jobs that we're not fully skilled in. 
A couple of the guys that fascinate me in this um, <coughs> chapter, they identifies as goldsmiths and perfumers. Now, a goldsmith, I guess, you know, we could say is a jeweler. A perfumer, what's he? <laughs> Maybe a guy who makes perfume, I suppose. But one thing's for sure, he wouldn't be a bricklayer, would he? And here he is, building a wall. And it always strikes me that uh, we see here not so much the ability, but availability. Now, if you want your wall built around your house, you're not naturally going to go and find the jeweler to come and do it. Or go into one of a department store and walk into the, through the ladies' department. In fact, this happened to me one time. I took a wrong turn in life and ended up in the ladies' department of the farmer's trading store. And there was a guy there who, to me, he must have been a perfumer. He was into ladies' perfume. He worked there, so that was okay. And he was sort of talking to ladies and giving them samples of perfume. And I looked at him and I thought, you're about as far away from me as I could ever imagine anyone to be in my understanding of what a bloke does. He would not be someone I'd, I'd call up to come and build my wall. But here he was. <laughs> you know, uh, to me, that's a, that's a perfumer. Uh, here he was working alongside, you know, hairy-chested construction guys building the wall. And I see here a picture of the diversity that we have in the body of Christ. And there is unity in that. There was a unity in all of these guys and girls, even though they were vastly different in their stations of life or their professions or whatever, but they came together for a common goal. And I see that is such an intriguing picture of the body of Christ. We come together for, a, for the one common thing that, that unites us is Christ. Outside of that, we come from vastly different backgrounds and just about everything else, and that's the way it should be. A church should be a, a collection of, of vastly different um, people and ideas and opinions and all sorts of that stuff, but united in this one thing that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Saviour. And we've, of course, we've been reminded, we've celebrated that this morning through communion. The one thing that draws us together is that, hey, we're saved by the blood of Christ. I often use the phrase, because it, it just really kind of resonates with me and the idea of, of within the body of Christ, you know, who are we and what are we and, and how we connect together and and I like the saying, hey, we're just really, as a Christian, I'm really just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And that's it, isn't it? We come and we seek the bread of Jesus Christ. He is the one that unites us. And so here we see this uniting of all of these uh, wide range of people building a wall. The church of Jesus Christ should also be the uniting of a wide range of people firstly committed to Christ in their lives but also supporting one another. You can be sure as someone who grew up on, on, on building sites as you're getting on and doing stuff, building things, working alongside others, especially guys 
there is a degree of, of uh, communion, of fellowship, of, of connection with someone who you're doing a job with, even though you're not talking about the deeper things of life. There is something about the, uh, the, the common working together that I'm sure was also going on uh, in this job of building this wall. As you're there with someone, you know, mixing the cement, laying the blocks, um, bashing your thumb, <laughs> going through the heat of the day, there is something about that connection that is made, and, and I believe the same happens in the church as you journey life, through life together, work through the situations around us, stand with one another. Uh, there is a connection that is made that is greater, you could say the great, greater than the, <coughs> the, the sum of the parts. And so here we have this work going on, this, this, this physical uh, activity. The wall was being built. It was a continuous wall, of course. The only gaps were the, door, the, the gates. Uh, any gap or, or break would compromise the whole structure. Nehemiah, he was an effective leader in this way. And so he made each person, each man accountable for his own work. Every group there had a, a, a set task and, and, and an area for them to work on. You can be sure that if you're working on the piece of wall that your name's going to be attached to, you want to make sure it's looking good, right? You want to make sure it's straight. You don't want someone coming along later and say, hey, look at that, you know, that's the, that's the wall that Steve built. Look at the lean on it, you know. Man, it's all out of shape, but look at the guy, look at the one next to it. You know, it was the next crew, man, didn't they do a good job? So you can be sure that there was a responsibility uh, for everyone uh, that was given by Nehemiah to get on and do their piece of work. By giving each man a sense of responsibility, they certainly, he certainly helped ensure the work would be done right and that degree of accountability. We need accountability, don't we, in our own lives. Nehemiah was effective because he noted who did the work and who didn't. Kind of interesting, you know, there were some people that didn't do any work there. Uh, there were others who did more. Uh, the Tekoites, they actually did another section, even though their nobles <laughs> wouldn't get their hands dirty. Nehemiah also was effective because he organized the work for maximum efficiency. Everyone had their section to do. Uh, and were able to get on and do it. He was an effective leader because he knew where to start. He began with the spiritual aspect. Interesting that it was the high priest who started, and, and the, the consecration of it was also mentioned there. That's where this wall began. He was effective because he was also willing to let people try new things. We think of the goldsmiths, the priests, the perfume, perfumers, <laughs> they were all became construction workers. You know, he, it was, he took a risk. Hey, guys, have a go. You know, I mean, uh, it, it's great to get out there and take a risk, and he was one that was willing to do that. He was effective because he made people focus also on what was in front of them, and there were, there were those who, who just worked on their house, the, the, the piece right in front of their house, get that bit done first. He also wasn't effective because he didn't disqualify people because of what some other 
past issue in their life. We need to allow God to work in our lives and recognize that God doesn't disqualify us, but he calls us to come into relationship with him, to deal with the things of the past, but to move forward, to move forward in, in, in growth and in strength and in maturity. And so all of this is happening in chapter 3. Many things we could sort of uh, touch on there in, in chapter 3, but it, it basically the whole chapter will go through in a similar pattern, talking about the section that was repaired by a certain group of people and, and on and on through that chapter. So 38-odd groups of guys, construction crews. You know, <clears throat> the, other, the other morning, early in the morning, I had stopped at the gas station to get... Um, We'll get some gas, actually. That was surprising, wasn't it? So it's usually what you go there for. But it was interesting. It was just that time of the day. A lot of tradies were coming through, you know, filling up their um, utes and trucks and whatever. Can you, all, can you imagine Nehemiah here? 38. 38 trucks were coming in, getting gas to go out to their jobs in the morning. You know, that was, it was 38 sets of crew coming in. I don't know what they used then. Horse, cart, not a horse, donkey. Whatever they were doing, there was 38 of them. 38 groups of guys going out each morning uh, to work on their section of wall. A lot of activity going on in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is about work. When we get to chapter 4, rather interesting, we assume with all this great work going on, everyone's going to be as happy as a clam, right? We'll look at verse 1 of chapter 4. It so happened then, or when, Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of the Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones of the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break it, he will break down their stone wall. And so, you can be sure, the moment you start doing something, there will be resistance. There will be the people that will complain, they won't like it. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Just this week, an interesting article I read, with all you know, the, the, the grieving that's going on in England with the Queen passing and all the different events going on. Along come... Harry and Megan, right? So as soon as you say that name, everyone's got their own idea about it. But hey, in the day they're human, right? So here are Harry and Megan. They're coming out of the Westminster Hall, um, visiting the coffin or whatever. All the other worlds are there, and, and Harry and Megan are coming out, and Megan holds Harry's hand. Well, it's the end of the world. The amount of complaints. Hey, she shouldn't be doing that. Royal protocols. Blah blah blah. On and on and it goes. It's like, well, hey, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, someone will complain. Because there was plenty of others who said, hey, give them a break, they're only human. You know, he's wanting to, she's wanting whatever you think of Harry and Meg, it's not really the point. As a wife, she was wanting to hold her husband's hand as they come out from this sort of emotional time. What's wrong with that? And there's plenty of people who would say, well, there's a lot, of, a lot of things wrong with that, you know. So it doesn't matter what you do, someone won't like it. And here we have the same thing hap happening here. Sam Ballerton and, and his mate. There'd already been a run-in with these guys. They were deeply disturbed back in verse, uh, verse 10 of chapter 2. They were deeply disturbed, we read there, when they heard 
a man wanted to help the people of Jerusalem. And so they use scorn and indignation to prevent the work from starting as it gets over uh, further along in, cha- in that chapter 2, over to verse 19. But now the work had begun, we read that they are furious and very indignant. And so it's just everything's just sort of ramping up a notch. And the, the nature of their discouraging attack is evident. They use this sort of sarcastic attack. They mock them. Yo, these feeble Jews, you know hopeless even if a fox goes up on it he's going to break down their wall so you can imagine what they're saying you know like they're probably picking up on the facts the fact that hey there's some some jewelers down there working on the wall there's some perfumers what do they know about building a wall if a fox even jumps on it the thing's going to fall over so you can imagine uh, just the scorn and derision that they're bringing Will they sacrifice? It has the idea of, well, will they seek God through sacrifice and expect him to miraculously build the walls? Will they pray the walls up? Will they complete it in a day? It has the idea of, do they have any idea what they're taking on? This is a major project, a construction project, and they're using jewelers and perfumers to do it. And so you can just imagine uh, and, and feel the, 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 the um, indignation or all of the attack that's coming here. And like most attacks of discouragement, there's always an element of truth. You know, the enemy doesn't always, doesn't speak, you know, complete lies all of the time. But there will be a degree of truth in there somewhere. Because as builders, you could say, well, they probably are a bit feeble. No, they won't complete it in a day. They probably don't have the best materials to work with. They're sort of, you know, making best of what they've got. And, you know, a lying and a discouraging attack will often have some truth in it, but it will neglect the great truth. And in this case, God was with them and God was leading them and had promised to see it through. And so these couple of fellows, Sam Ballot and Tobiah, they sought to bring the discouragement through criticism. <clears throat> it was Chuck Swindoll who made this comment. There were many of them together doing the sarcastic, mocking criticism. And he says this, critics run with critics. One measure of a leader is to be able to measure criticism to not allow one to be run down by the critical while still being sensitive to God's voice in the midst of it. And you know, discouragement <coughs> excuse me, is one of the most powerful weapons because it is somewhat the opposite of faith, isn't it? Where faith believes God and his love and promises, discouragement looks for and believes the worst. It tends to Forget about who God is and what he has promised to do. And so often that's the angle the enemy will come at us with. He will discourage us. He doesn't want us considering what God has done and looking ahead to what God will do. He wants us to be discouraged at often the reality of things around. 
any of those guys building the walls could have looked around them and, and said, well, yeah, it is a bit of a drag, isn't it? You know, we've got broken down, you know, rubbish around us. We're trying to reuse these old materials. Uh, look at those guys down there working on that bit of wall. They've got no idea what they're doing. Even I haven't really never done this before. And, you know, perhaps a fox could knock it over, you know. I don't really quite know how exactly to mix mixed mortar or, you know, have I got the bonds straight on the on, on the blocks or, you know, you could imagine all of this just starting to circulate and that's what the enemy loves to do. He just drops in a few things that often are truths and stands back and lets us sort of somewhat destroy ourselves. Discouragement is one of the deadliest things that we can allow into our lives. Tobiah made a huge mistake, though. He called the wall their stone wall. And, of course, <clears throat> this was actually something that God was leading. Critics who bring nothing but discouragement often miss what God is doing. They don't like the wall. They can't believe it's God's work. In the same way, the church, of course, uh, <clears throat> will have much attack on it. But the church is the bride of Christ. And one should always be careful about the way you talk about Jesus' bride. Because Nehemiah and the workers did, in fact, have legal protection from the king uh, through the letters, uh, these couple of fellows, Sanballat and Tobiah, had no authority to actually stop the work. All they could do was to try and discourage the Jews into stopping. They had no ability to stop it themselves. They just wanted to get them so upset that they had to stop. And so the exact same uh, attack, of course, comes into the, the life of any believer who is legally set free by God. The blood of Christ has cleansed a man from all sin, for all who will believe. Yet that same believer can be so discouraged as drawing back from what God has set before him. The enemy is an usurper. He will assert his authority be way beyond uh, anywhere where he is <clears throat> allowed. We work differently under faith or under discouragement. What's it like to work when you're discouraged? <laughs> it's not fun, is it? Suddenly nothing works. Suddenly everything you do and look at is, is no good. Whereas working under faith, you're understanding, well, God is leading me here. It changes everything. We pray differently, don't we? You pray under faith or you pray under discouragement. We read and hear the word of God differently, either under faith or under discouragement. It's no wonder that the enemy, our enemy, Satan, works so hard to keep us from faith and to keep us in discouragement. The writer of Hebrews reminds us, now the just shall live by faith. And that's how we live. We can never get away from the aspect of faith. We tend to try and live by sight. We sometimes get confused about what faith is. We see here the opportunity that was given to these fellows to start to live under discouragement and to live by sight 
And so what happens? Well, Nehemiah steps in, verse 4, Hear, O our God. So now he prays. Look what he says, For we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. And so here is Nehemiah's response to this whole thing. Here is the attack that it's come. The, the allegations have been made, all this is being stirred up. And the first thing he does is pray. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't engage. He doesn't engage in debate. He didn't say, well, hey, you know, it's all very well you to, you to say this and get into this immediate dialogue with them. No, he just starts by praying. He didn't form a committee, a response crisis team, whatever. He didn't even deal with the, the, these two enemies directly. Instead, he prayed. For Nehemiah, prayer was the first response, not a last resort. Too often we get sort of sucked into that, don't we? I've tried everything. Man, I've even tried praying. It's like, well, <laughs> pray first. Then try everything after that if you want. But first pray. Prayer is not the last resort. You can be sure the enemy will try and keep us away from the things that are the most effective, and prayer is one of them. And he'll keep us in the things that are most destructive, and one of them is discouragement. And so Nehemiah prays, when time of oppositions come, God wants us to rely on him. And the purest way of expressing our reliance is certainly through prayer. Now in his prayer, Nehemiah first asked for God's attention and mercy. Yes, God did care about Nehemiah and he cared about the work of rebuilding. But Nehemiah needed God to display it and he also needed to sense God's presence and care. And of course, this is a, a crucial point. If you become, if you lose the awareness of God's presence, then you feel alone. But God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So there are times we, when we may feel that, that we have to sort of remind ourselves, well, God said he's not going to leave me nor forsake me. We need to have that close relationship that we are not left alone. So he, he needed to be aware of that. Nehemiah asked God to battle their enemies for them, and this is a great way to do it. He depended on God to fight the battle. God gave him work to do, and he would not be distracted from it. And so, interesting, this prayer seemed pretty tough, but prayers in the Psalms are often even tougher. We think of Psalm 58. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. <laughs> and so, instead of you know, a direct attack to these people, he's saying, God, you know, you take them out. You deal with them. Psalm 69, let their dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in their tents. And so the, the concept of, of, of seeking God, Lord, you deal with them. You know, this is what I'd like you to do to them, but hey, we'll leave it in your hands, Lord. It is proper for a, a, a child of God to pray such a prayer because they are they're giving their violent inclinations over to God. If it was up to me, Lord, I'd just like to smash their teeth. But Lord, you know, may you do it but I'm going to, going to leave it in your hands. And that, that's very much a good way to do it, isn't it? God knows exactly what to do. In Nehemiah's prayer, it gave God a reason to show mercy and to come against 
his, his enemies. Nehemiah recognized that this was God's cause, not his own. They have provoked you to anger, Lord. And so the result, of, <clears throat> result after the attack in Nehemiah's defense and prayer, we see in the next verse, verse 6, so he built the wall. And the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Look how God answered the prayer. You might be thinking, well, God will answer the prayer. He's going to send down fire from heaven and just smoke the enemy and wipe them out. He certainly could do that. But I believe here God's prayer is answered by giving these people all a mind to work. And so what happened? <laughs> the, the project continued on. It seemed at an increased uh, pace. The entire wall was joined together up to half of its height. The people got on with it. This attack seemed to just galvanize their resolve to, to keep going. And God worked, I believe, uh, his plan through this attack. A mind to work is a gift from God and no significant job will ever be accomplished without it. And of course, this is exactly what the enemy wants to destroy. He wants to destroy the mind to work. He wants to make us feel defeated. He wants to make us feel passive or, or self-focused or discouraged. All of those things turn the camera around and focus on us, doesn't it? The enemy wants us to get us looking at ourselves. Oh, that's not fair on me. Or something about me, how it affects me. Oh, I'm not feeling good. I feel defeated. Or, or, or um, you know, focusing on self certainly can be a discouraging aspect of its own. Critics tend to demoralize. But leaders' role should be to encourage. When the critics spoke, the workmen heard them. No doubt they were demoralized. But when the leader stepped up and said, look, let's look at it God's way. Stay at the job. Then there was encouragement. And so the immediate answer to this prayer made no difference, you could say, to the enemies. The prayer was answered in the people of God doing the work. Nehemiah's prayer asked God to take care of the enemies. God answered by taking care of his people. Isn't that kind of cool? God, you, swipe, you, you just wiped them out, Lord. But the answer was he actually strengthened the people in the work. We often miss God's answers to our prayers because we pray for him to do a work in a specific way, perhaps in the lives of others that we're in conflict with. But really, he, he's wanting to work in our hearts. He often answers by moving in our lives. And often we resist that moving because, well, we're waiting for the, the fire to, to, to sort of just descend on the enemy. And nothing's happening. <laughs> but all the time, God is saying, well, I'm working in your heart. And sometimes we can resist that moving because we're just looking for the fire to burn the enemy. 
It's as if he, is, he tried to give us a mind to work in a situation, but we kind of resisted it because we're sort of looking at something else that we think should happen. And so the, the, the work continued on. The work was half finished. The, the wall was up to half its height. Uh, it was indeed uh, an exciting time, but a dangerous time. Much had been done, but there was much left to do. Fatigue and discouragement were ready to set in if given an opportunity. And that's what we see in the next few verses. It happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, this is verse 7, uh, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ash, Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry and all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. And so we see it ramps up another gear. We've had the initial uh, attack. We've, we've had the response. The people have got working again. But the attack now is spreading further. The wall was as half, half its height. It was almost continuous now. And the enemies became very angry. It must be that the work of God often makes the enemy angry. He often will rage against the progress being made by God's people. As the work progressed, the enemy became more serious. They simply they didn't just complain or mock, but they threatened now violence. On one hand, this was, a seri uh, was serious. The wall uh, was built to protect against the attacks of violence, but now it seemed the very building of the wall may prompt an attack to come. It would have been easy for the people to fear and to think perhaps all their work would be uh, of no use at all. On the other hand, this wasn't serious at all. We noticed that they didn't attack. They talked about it. Sanballat, Tobiah, they were hoping that the threat of attack would be enough, and often that is enough. Often the threat is enough to stop a person. Satan used the same strategy in our own lives. He brings fear against us, that he may paralyze us by a threat, even when nothing actually happens. So many people living in fear today. Fear of all sorts of things are going to happen. The deep state are going to come and take you, or... Something's going to happen. Uh, the government are out to get you, and, and on and on, and we can live in that fear. Now, we certainly become aware of all of the, we, we know the, the, the darkness out there, the prince of the world and whatever, but we don't, live in the, we don't have to live in that fear. So often we can get our eyes off God. We do live in fear. The best way to avoid fear is to get our eyes back onto Christ. We know uh, the, the, what the scripture declares about the times uh, in which we live and, and, and what's ahead for sure. But that's not where we live. We, we, we live with our focus on Christ. Now the enemy wants to get us confused. He wants to get us fearful. He wants to make a big threatening noise against us. And for many people that's enough. They will t sort of cower into the hole. He wants to create confusion, and this is, of course, an important strategy that Satan uses. He wants to create confusion among the people of God. A confused people will never move forward and fulfill God's work. They're usually confused because they're distracted by 
various tricks of the enemy instead of focusing on, on God and his promises. So, so what happened? Verse 9, nevertheless, <laughs> this is a great word, isn't it? Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. So I love the way this, the, the, this guy is so practical in what he does, but, but of course, he has the wisdom of God. First thing, he prays. See, nothing would make them stop depending on God through prayer. They might have given up. They might have, you know, believed that this continued attack was a failure on God's part to answer the prayer. Look, we thought this is, we were going to be sort of home and hose now, but it's still happening. Maybe we should just, you know, this is really getting serious now. But no, they had more trust in God than that. So this, uh, this attack was going on. Would you think, well, surely if God's in this, there'll be no more attacks and everything will be fine. But how often does God allow the attack for a certain work that he wants to accomplish in our own lives? No doubt God could have easily just swept that away at that time, but he didn't. He allowed this to continue. He saw his people draw closer to him with a deeper trust than ever before. God did his work both in building the walls and building his people. I think there's more to this whole story than just the building of the wall. There's a building of people going on here. There's a building of individuals. If it's uh, faced with all sorts of attacks, uh, as they're put into situations outside their comfort zone, as they've made themselves available to God, they're experiencing all sorts of different things going on here. And I think the, the physical aspect of the wall being built is symbolic of the building that was going on in the life of each person. We often find that in our own lives, so I do believe God does things in our lives that aren't that exciting, it seems, but he's building. He's building in you the things that he can only often achieve through difficulties, trials, and struggle. It would be great if it wasn't that way, if God could achieve all he wanted to achieve, you know, with lovely springtime weather and, you know, birds flittering around and everything fine and dandy but it's never that way is it so often god achieves through the storms of life things that can only be achieved that way the people knew that prayer didn't mean they were to do nothing notice and so they used common sense i like to call it sanctified common sense to do what they should have, to protect against the attacked. Willing servants of God, working on the wall, they prayed and they set a watch. When we see an area of our own life that needs particular attention, it isn't, prayer isn't always just the end and that's it, it's where we begin. But often we need to do something else as well, some practical uh, aspect. And here we see they prayed and they set a watch. Uh, they prayed to God, uh, committed to God, but figured, hey, well, what should we do here? Common sense will tell us we need to set a watch so that if we see the enemy coming, we can, you know, sound the alarm. They did something practical. They didn't just think, well, let's have a prayer meeting and then let's not do anything more. 
But they started by praying, and I'm quite sure, as most, most often this happens, you start praying about something, and ideas start to formulate. I can imagine they're praying, Lord, what do we do about this? Got these enemies coming? As they're praying and, and they're, they're committing it to God, you can be sure God will start to work in your, your heart. Well, hey, why don't you set a watch? Kind of a natural thing, isn't it? Many times in our own lives, we need to do that, that as a result of beginning in prayer. What can we do from there on? Our prayers do not replace our actions. They make our actions effective for God's work. And so day and night, as mentioned here, Nehemiah was determined. He wouldn't let the security of the daylight or the sleeplessness of the night keep from the work. And of course, this sent a powerful message, a message to the people of God saying, hey, we are committed to this. God is with us. He will enable us. A message also to the enemies. Hey, God's work continues on. And it also, I believe, communicated to God, Lord, we're trusting in you. Our faith is a living faith, a faith of action, not just words. We're trusting you, Lord, but we're prepared to do all that we can in the practical aspects of life. And so how does this all play out? Well, we'll find out in the next few verses as we continue on. But for today, maybe just uh, conclude at that point and, and just reflect on some of the very practical things that we've bumped over today. Yes, that the, there is work, uh, but the work doesn't always result in the way we might think it would. Sometimes what we do does create enemies or does create attacks from enemies or it, it finds enemies that we didn't know were there or whatever the case might be that's just life how do we deal with it firstly we pray we seek god we give it to him let him work his way through uh, the situation and as we pray let's not just leave it uh, buried there but let us also take practical means uh, to implement in our lives the things that god would want to do in us rather than have him smite the enemy what does god want to do in us to change us to conform us into the image of christ and maybe there's practical things we need to do in our lives as a result of prayer dealing with the situations that we often face whatever the case might be let us take a, a lesson from uh, what god has given here in the book of nehemiah uh, and this man nehemiah the, the way and, and the heart that he had and how god used unlikely people uh, to achieve a result uh, that was in consistent with his will let us pray father we do just thank you lord for just the example here of nehemiah the example of dealing with uh, work going forward in the face of adversity in the face of discouragement in the face of of outward attack in the in the in the face of of the enemy seeking to bring fear. Lord, may you implement in our lives the aspects of, of, of faith in a practical way that you would have us put into action today. Perhaps there's changes that we need to make, how we, how we display our faith, how, we, how that works out in our lives, how we communicate to others. Lord, may we not have a, a view on, on you doing work somewhere else or on someone else at the expense of you working in us it has to start in our hearts first so lord i pray that we would take stock of our own lives this morning 
that we would reflect, that your spirit would work heavily in us. Lord, may we, after committing these areas to you, may we be active in implementing the changes that we need to as you direct us. Lord, we do thank you for your overarching mercy and grace that it's not about ability but of, uh, availability and, and a willingness of, of heart and we see here a, a willingness of the people to work to put their hand to the plough as it were so Lord may that reflect our hearts as people of the church of Jesus Christ may we also be willing just as these people were to despite their differences despite their different places and stations in life they were prepared in unity to go forward to accomplish the task ahead. Lord, we thank you that uh, you've drawn the church together in a similar way, a collection of people from all uh, walks of life, all areas, uh, and our unity is found in Christ. May we rejoice in that, and may that be the focus uh, of, our, um, of our attention, as it were. Uh, that's what brings us together, and Lord, we ask now that the unity that we have in Jesus Christ may be tangible amongst us, May you move, may you equip, may you strengthen us for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Let's uh, just stand and conclude and worship this morning, shall we? Thank you.